Welcome to You Influence Podcast, where you will hear everything you need to learn how to be a man or woman of influence for the better in your personal and professional life, in business, at work, and in your social life. Becoming a person of positive influence has an invaluable effect in ways we cannot imagine, but can only be felt in personal fulfillment. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the You Influence podcast. My name is Rafael Mavi, as you already know. If you don't, and this is your first uh, episode checking this out, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. We urge you to uh, take a look at our other episodes. I have somebody very um, special today, and uh, this is somebody, by the way, he carries the same name as I do, Rafael, just spoke a little different, but it's okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I've known this uh, man for about 11, close to 12 years now, and uh, watched his uh, transformation into a newfound career, and uh, I, I don't know if I could call it a calling, but definitely a mission. I know you're yeah. on a mission. Definitely okay. a mission, yeah. That's awesome. And uh, Raphael, actually, uh, I'm going to let him share his story, but he is also an immigrant. He uh, was not born in the U.S. He gave me a joke before. He's like, Donnie can't do anything. I love that. But uh, it's okay. We can talk. Yeah. yeah we, whatever. You know, like politics, whatever you want to talk yeah. about. That's fine. Okay. But um, I don't know if you know the background of our podcast, but it's really the, the theme of influence. Right? Everybody walking this earth has been influenced, continues to get influenced in order to make the decisions they make in life. Some more than others. Right? And we already know that. But more importantly, how do you influence others, whether you realize it or not? Whether you're working um, for a company, whether you're running a business, whether you're a family person, uh, whoever and wherever. And uh, the background of it is, you know, I own a company called Unplugged Influence, which is a consulting and training company. And Unplugged stands for um, transparency. So it's leadership through transparency. So I was thinking about how to come up with this um, name for the podcast. I was, in my mind, it's like, how do we spread the message for more potential business owners to understand this and listen to it and get the aha moment? So uh, the more I thought about it and the more topics I was writing uh, to talk about, like, you know what? This is not going to be applicable just for business owners. Influences for everybody because it all starts in your head before you even think about running the business. You know, so... So that's the background of, about the company. You do know my background coming up yes. from direct sales. Uh, I was a network engineer before transitioning to uh, direct sales, where I spent probably 10 to 11 years, had a lot of fun, you know, great experience, and then transitioning to building a traditional business, which led me to doing consulting, and that was simply because I started paying attention to what my wife was saying, finally, right? Because all those years I was like, you know, I'm going to do it my way. So you a good man is a great wife. Yes. Uh, that's what they say. That's what they say. Right, and you well, better listen. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So without any further ado, Ryan, I want to take it away. I do have a few questions, but I also want it to be a very conversation-like. So if there's something, because I know you got a huge business to run. you got, what, three, four, three facilities? Three locations, yeah. Three locations. Yeah. So if, if it has anything to do with um, compliance or legality, right, and you don't want it to be out there, just don't share it. So I'm giving you permission to not answer a question that okay. I may have. May or may not be the fifth. All right. Okay. Be the fifth. I'm cool. All right. So um, t- tell us who you were before 
before you knew what you wanted to do as a profession. So between the ages of, you know, 8, 10 up to, let's say, university, college, if you went to college, you know, what formed you as who you were growing up? What type of environment were you exposed to? The influence that you had, whether it was parents, work, friends? I think, uh, like a lot of immigrants uh, coming to the country, uh, parents typically are really hard workers, may not be uh, extremely educated in some places they are, and my parents weren't necessarily. Uh, we come from Cuba, uh, and I came here when I was a year and a half old. So I've been basically raised in New York City for the last uh, 45 years or so. Um, what I learned from my, uh, my dad in particular is uh, a nonstop, um, hardworking uh, perspective. He used to always tell me that, you know, um, be like a, uh, a, um, an ox where you have the blinders on and you just focus what's in front of you and just keep moving forward. And in many cases that, you know, that was the scenario. Coming from a communist country, they were also extremely, extremely conservative. So um, their mindset is different than what mine is. Fortunately, I've been able to you know, get out of that, that uh, mindset space that they had of being very conservative and be just uh, content with uh, having a roof over your head, make sure there's food on the table, and you've succeeded in comparison to where they came from. Um, that was a burden that they had to carry. That's not necessarily my burden to carry because I wasn't, you know, uh, I didn't live my life in that, in that atmosphere. I, I basically lived my life in the United States. Um, so I, I'm much more of an achiever than my parents. They've done extremely well for um, speaking very little of the language. My mom speaks more than my dad, but my dad's uh, limited on, you know, his uh, English, but yet he's uh, gotten his point across and he's done very well for himself. But, you know, they're not going to take risks. And a lot of the stuff that I did was uh, uh, risky and they were very risk adverse. Um, I went to school for engineering and when I was a little kid, I always loved uh, working with my hands and building. Uh, so it just made sense to go into engineering school or it was gonna be architecture, I chose engineering. So I graduated uh, graduated as a civil engineer, and that was like the happiest day for my parents. They had made you know, their goal, which was to give me an education, and I had become, you know, I got to choose, they didn't push me into anything, I became an engineer. So I did that for 12 years, and then after that, I decided to quit. And that was like probably the saddest day of your life of their parents. Life. For them, because they were like, you got to be crazy, you know, you have a good job, you get paid well, you have all these perks and stuff, and, but it wasn't fulfilling for me. You know, I, I felt like there was something missing. The other thing was that I had gone from a really big company that was publicly traded, where the profits, you couldn't point to one person, and then I went to a small company where um, that was one individual that owned the company, and in many, and, my, and I was there for like three years, and we did really well financially. Um, and I had a bonus, but it was in comparison it was tiny. And then the owner of the company made a, a good chunk of change, like a really big chunk of change. And since it was uh, self-owned, I knew who exactly who had the money. But I knew that that was made because of the efforts that I had put in. Not necessarily their efforts. So when you say a small company, how small was it? Well, when I first had gotten there, they were doing a little over a million dollars in gross revenue. By the time I left, they were at around eleven million dollars. And, and that was three years. Three, and how many people were working for the company? It was just uh, the owner and uh, myself and another engineer. Oh, wow. And then, you know, the laborers that did the work and stuff like that, but the people who ran the company was really... So how many people went out of the field? 
In the field, they, uh, it was a small company. I had maybe uh, any one time, maybe 20 guys. Okay. Prior to that, I, I worked at the Tribal Bridge. We had like 160 guys at the height of that uh, rehabilitation. So that was like $138 million job. And now it's doing now two, $3 million jobs, much smaller company. Um, but the potential to grow it was a lot bigger. But at the end of the day, I was really growing it for someone else. So either you, you know, um, build your own dream or someone hires you to build their dream. That's right. You know, you hear that uh, an awful lot and that's really the case. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you're happy where you are and you're building someone else's dream, but you're still satisfied and you're getting compensated correctly, then I think that that's fine. I'm not pushing, here to push entrepreneurship to anyone. What I am here to push is that one of the toughest things to do is to go through, you know, college, four or five, six years of college or a master's or a PhD, and then six, seven years down the road decide that that's not what you want to do. And society in many ways is against that, telling you like, no, 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 you went to school for that, you got to you know, continue this path. And if you don't want to do it, don't do it. You know, I have a, a friend of mine that's uh, an attorney and decided to go to uh, culinary school and became a chef. You know, um, where that goes for him there, I don't know. But I have another friend that was also a physical therapist, and she stopped doing physical therapy, and she also went to culinary school and became a chef. I mean, not that everybody should become a chef, but it's completely different than what they went to school for. So right. you're, you're, you're stuck in this whole mindset of, like, I went to school for this. I have to make it work. You don't have to make it work. If you can find something else that makes you happy um, or another path that's, lucrative for you financially and you want to try it out, there should be nothing to hold you back from saying like, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to go forward and, and try that. Uh, I'm sure some people listening, they're, they're, their response will be, well, it's easier said than done because then you have, you know, if you're in a family, if you have kids, you have financial commitments and like, how, do you, how do you stop the cash flow and then try something new? Yeah, it's not easy. It's not for everybody. Uh, you have to have a strong stomach for it. And, if it's, and you're not trying, it doesn't make you weak. It just, you know, makes you smart in many cases. You know, when you have a lot of people already depending on you, I didn't, you know, uh, for a certain time in my life, I was married and I was divorced. Um, I didn't have kids. I didn't really have that huge of a responsibility. So I had the opportunity to take a, a risk like that. People that, that are uh, married, um, well, you know what, let me, after I've, I did engineering for 12 years, I tried to do, I did contracting work for like two years on, on my own, uh, and I stumbled upon what I do now, which is uh, co-working spaces for creatives. So creatives are uh, fashion designers, jewelry designers, uh, virtual reality uh, um, developers, uh, and a whole gamut of, of different makers and artists. So... Here I get to see uh, businesses starting out from the ground floor. Someone that uh, all of a sudden started doing uh, t-shirts and slowly started to, started to expand, so they, they have their shop here. Or someone that uh, had a recipe that made soap at home, now they've gotten a little bit bigger than what they you know, can do at home, so they've now come to a space like ours and they're creating products here and they're selling on Etsy or Amazon Handmade. So I get to see these uh, uh, people starting out with uh, an idea, and they're coming here after work. So they work their regular job, and then they come here at maybe 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, and they go till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night with their product. So you're like the we work for artists. Yeah, artists and makers. You know, I mean, it's a combination. Uh, artists have a tough time finding space and keeping space because they make the area cool, and then they get pushed out of that area and stuff like that. Uh, and that's just been the story of, of New York City overall, um, how, you know, they, uh, from Chelsea to Soho, 
to the East Village, to Dumbo, Dumbo to Williamsburg, Williamsburg now to Bushwick. Bushwick is where we are, and where is that next space? Who knows? Um, but that's the migration path of uh, the artists. But as well as the artists is the makers. Makers, uh, unfortunately, can't be in a typical co-working space. Right now, the, the, the behemoth of all is WeWork. They've right. done an amazing, amazing job getting out there, and, and they're worth now, I think, uh, over $40 billion is their last valuation. Really? So absolutely amazing. Except that, you know, if you've ever been to a WeWork, beautiful spaces, what's the last time you went to a WeWork and saw a sewing machine? Right. Or a person that has a vinyl cutter cutting up, you know, vinyls for a sign, or a person that's, you know, uh, tie-dyeing t-shirts. Our spaces are extremely clean in the hallways, but there's a mess inside that studio where you're working, and that's, you know, intentional because you need a space to, to work. Uh, and they're not accepted in these uh, traditional office-type co-working spaces. We're co-working it just for a different model or a different uh, group of people. The other thing is that we don't compete for space with a uh, office co-working or a WeWork. They need to be in a Class A real estate area that's already been uh, changed over and you have two or three restaurants that are close by or a, a few coffee shops. You know, it's already a trendy pool area. We've gone into areas where it's just a, an old factory, repurposed the factory, and are able to, you know, service our members in these locations. And then the area starts to change around us to accommodate the needs of these people. But we don't need an area. So we don't compete for uh, inventory and we don't compete for members. So we think that we're in a really cool little niche. So trying to bring back micro-manufacturing to the United States. That's like one of my big, big focuses is manufacturing in general left the United States. Clothing, sneakers, it's all overseas, you know, massive. But you can't, you know, people say, oh, you can get that done in China. China's not going to do an order of 100 shirts for you. It's going to cost you more than what it would here. They're not going to change their, 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 their machines and everything to make one product 100 times. They'll do a million products, and it'll be cheaper than here. So that micro-manufacturing is where I think there's an opportunity for the United States to excel. And you're seeing a lot of that because you see a lot of weekend markets, and Etsy's well over a billion-dollar company, and what's sold there is anything that's handmade, and Amazon Handmade has done really well as well. And that's, again, handmade products that are from here in the United States. Okay. So when I first took a look at your first location that you were building out, you, you, I saw it before you actually started the demolition and the construction. So that was about 11 years ago, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, since then, you have developed how many, three or four? Where three locations more, yeah. Three more locations? Uh, uh, three locations in total, sorry. Three yeah. locations in total. How many spaces are you guys renting out between the three? So when you first saw us, we, that first location was th uh, 30 uh, workspaces. Now we're at 178 workspaces. 178? Yeah, and a little over 200 members. Some, some of them are shared. What, what's the occupancy rate? We hover around 95, 96%. That's pretty high. So, yeah, we've been very fortunate that way. And our, right now the problem that we have is we just don't have enough inventory for people. You so know, that 4%... Maybe small studios, someone's looking for something bigger, so that's always going to be there. So right now, that's the next step that we're looking for is uh, to start looking for investors to really kind of expand the model out. Okay, so you're looking to expand and get more space. Yeah, uh, and uh, we're looking hopefully, uh, not hopefully, we're looking to expand into other cities. We know that other cities need spaces like us, um, and there's places that exist that are similar to us, except that we, I think we take it to the next level of professionalism, cleanliness, safety, 
and uh, it's a very organized system. And we'd like to be a pipeline into New York City for other locations. Wow. Okay. So before I get into the question as far as what, what's the drive behind that, as you're sitting there and telling me all this, I just read that sign that says, the barrier to entry is low. The barrier to success is execution. Yeah. And that's the, what, what, what does that mean? Because I'm sure some people are listening to this. They're like, well, I'm doing X, Y, Z right now, but I'm sick and tired of it. I want to do something else. Right. What, so what separates the, uh, the doers from people that are just sitting yeah, so observing? That, uh, that sign, that logo that, that we go by here is um, because of the, the niche that we're in. Uh, almost any person can open up a co-working space. You, you build out the space, throw in some desks, call it co-working. Or like us, you know, you can say, well, you just build white boxes, fill them up with makers and artists, and that's it. Yes, the barrier to entry is low because anybody can build them. But the success has been that we've been able to build this community around what we've built. So you hear the word community thrown around a lot, and everybody says, oh, we have this community. Usually it's uh, uh, a tech tech community where people maybe chat a little bit on, you know, uh, on a website or, or some sort of app platform. Um, or they have a vendor that comes in, Stoli, that's vodka, you know, and they'll have a, a, a meeting right. you know, or at a place. Like, we don't. Like, we serve wine and beer at our gallery openings. Uh, every Wednesday we have a meet and greet for our members to meet each other, and we may have beverages there. But that's an opportunity. Every every, uh, no, I'm sorry, every last Wednesday of the month. Okay. So 12 times a year the meet and greet, and then every four to six weeks we have a new gallery opening, and every three months we have open studios where we open up to the public. So the public can come in four times a year. Um, but in, in the circumstances where we have the uh, Wednesday, last Wednesday of the month, that's an opportunity for us to introduce people. So it's not you know uh, tech-driven. It's really uh, a face-to-face communication. So you're a fashion designer. You've been looking for a photographer. You come to that thing, and we'll, we know that that's what you're looking for. We're trying to put you together with someone. Whether it works or doesn't, that's up to you. We're just trying to make those collaborations because we have so much mixture here that we think that there's a good chance that you'll find somebody that you were looking for. You know, and that's really where I think the uh, statement is the execution is really what separates you. Because anybody can open the space, but making it thrive to the three locations that we have has been because of the reputation and what we do for our members and you know keeping consistent throughout the three locations. Okay. So what was the, uh, the gap, if there was a gap between you leaving a safe, secure position as an engineer to realizing this is what you're gonna do? So I didn't know this was what I was going to do. I stumbled upon this. Um, I, like I said, I, I left engineering and I started doing uh, rehabs of houses and flips. And in that process, I needed to find an office space that was an office, and I can store material there, and I can also occasionally work there, physically work there. Like you know, if I was making a custom tabletop or something, then I would make noise and it wouldn't be a big deal. If you have a regular office, you really can't see uh, them allowing a. Uh, circular saw going when next door is like a call center, you know? And then if you, if there, if you wanted to store stuff, my only option was like 5,000 square foot warehouse. I had to rent the whole thing out. So there was nothing in between. Someone said, you know, check out Craigslist. Uh, they have these things called art studios or workspaces that might work for you. So I went to one and I could have it as an office and I could also have it as a workspace. But the one I went to, the walls were half height so I can hear everything everybody was doing. Any smells that they had or dust or whatever would come over the wall. Um, the bathrooms were 
atrocious. And I was just like, that's crazy. And the place had, I think, eight studios. One was available. And the person said, if you don't take it, this might be gone tomorrow. And I was like, this guy's like a used car salesman. <laughs> like, come on. The next day I called, mm -hmm. more out of curiosity because the space was too small. And he says, oh, no, it's gone, but I can put you on the waiting list. And I was like, it's gone? Oh, so he was a BS. Yeah. And I was like, but that place was atrocious. Like, you know, the Guys, so the next time you try to buy something, that's got you off. Yeah. But the next time you try to buy something and the person, whether it's a person in charge of sales or whatever, tells you, you know, might as well grab it right now because it's going to be gone tomorrow. It's a good chance it might be. Pay attention. Yeah. So it was. <laughs> it was taken in, and that's when the light bulb went off for me. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe I can take a larger space, take a portion for myself, and chop up the other part and rent it out. And that's what I did was we took over the first location, 8,000 square feet. I did that one on my own. I took like 3,000, and I broke the other ones into smaller spaces and rented them out. And that so, started so, the whole thing. So you saw the idea for business as a consumer. Yeah, because you came in as a consumer. Right, exactly. And if it fulfilled my need, I knew there had to be other people that also this was going to fulfill their needs. And within a very short period of time, like maybe four months, we were full. So, and then I was just like, oh, this may be something here. And I was still doing the contracting work on the side. Uh, and then I started. Um, Did you ever run a business before that? I had never, you know, just contracting in business. You know, but but not for yourself, were you responsible for a payroll? Overhead. Yeah, but it was the contracting portion of it. So, like, I had, you know, uh, laborers, and I hired them, and I would pay them. Um, but it was also a very limited type of business where, like, uh, depending on how many hours I put in, that's how much money I could get because I was also one of the workers. So um, there was a ceiling to, you know, what you could do. Uh, and, then you can only, and I could only have uh, one or two projects at a time because I didn't have staff under me that was running the operations. I was running all the operations. You know, but now you have the leverage. You have uh, yeah. So now it's staff. yeah. We have staff now, and it's completely changed, and there's a structure to it. How, um, how many people do you have working for you? Have people? Um, I, four people. Four people and plus myself and my partner. Okay, so four people full time on a payroll. Yeah. Uh, about two hundred customers. Yeah. Renting out spaces. Yeah. One hundred and seventy-eight locations. Yeah. Offices. Yeah. Three locations. Yeah. What's the collective square footage? Uh, I think we're at a little over 40,000, like 41,000 square feet between the... That's impressive. Yeah, between the three. So yeah. you, you run a business based on 40,000 square feet physical space with four employees. Yeah, two managers. And 200 customers. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's, that's great. Level. Yeah, I mean, uh, the model itself, I think, is a great model. You know, we've gotten to a point where we think we've fine-tuned it. It doesn't require a lot of uh, resources from us. It requires a lot of, uh, of programming and maintenance on, on, on a monthly type basis and making sure that you're paying attention to what your customers' needs are. So if, if you're paying attention, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, and you're looking to invest your money somewhere, you got a proven business model of 11 freaking years, 40,000 square feet, operating at a 90 to 95% occupancy rate. Again, 11 years, 200 existing customers. Should I repeat, 95% retention occupancy rate. Uh, you could definitely park your money here and invest it with them. So that's cool. You know, and the other thing I think you find is that, like, we, uh, the three locations we did, you know, uh, ourselves. We built them ourselves. We managed them ourselves. All the money came from us. Um, and we never looked outside to get funding. You know, now, because we want to really try to really expand much more, it's inevitable that you're going to have to go to outside sources and bring in. Investors. 
you know, but that's not everybody. We have uh, members here. The amazing thing about the space itself and what makes me you know, want to come to work every day is you never know what questions are going to come to you, you know, whether they're uh, about marketing or about like um, um, storage of their materials, um, uh, packaging. And I have that opportunity to put people together. And that I get a kick out of that, you know, being able to see these uh, collaborations and stuff emerge. We even had one of our members that was in our other location from here two blocks away, ended up on Shark Tank. And they ended up getting a deal on Shark Tank. No kidding. With, uh, yeah, with FUBU. And with FUBU. Yeah. With the FUBU guy. Yeah. With David John. Yeah. David. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And they're called Elephant Pants. You know, mm. and, they, and they basically, their first location was with us. They expanded to two uh, studios, or two workspaces. And they were looking to expand to a third or maybe a fourth. And that's when I told them, like, you're kind of outgrowing us. My suggestion is really to go out there and just find your own small warehouse. Because right now it looks like you're killing it. You're going to outgrow and you're going to end up paying more. They didn't want to leave because of the um, networking that they were getting here. Mm -hmm. But they were growing to a size where, like, it just didn't make sense. I, I told them it didn't make sense for them financially. So they did. They finally moved out. And we've had great conversations uh, since then, but um, you just never know what what's being done here that's going to get to that next level. We've had people here that have sold on uh, at Home Depot, that have sold in uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. And the crazy thing is that sometimes they get an order that you can't fulfill, and they have to actually renege on the opportunity because they just don't have the funding for the raw material. They can't wait the sixty or ninety days to get mm -hmm. it reimbursed, or they can't fulfill the order quantity wise because they need machinery. So that's our next level is we want to try and get into that space as well that's awesome. and fulfill that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So business to the side. Uh, I know we discussed uh, a little bit about passion versus following the money, right? So what's your take on that? Because I see that your path has been in both. I don't know if you're passionate about this, but you, ju you definitely see an opportunity, right? And you saw the need in a marketplace for what you're doing right now as a consumer first. But you were... As, was it a civil engineer? Okay. Civil, yeah. civil engineer. Okay. So people that are, and you hear this a lot lately, following your passion, stop doing shit you hate. You know, a lot of it comes from influencers that are, you know, they, that deserve the, the, the attention they get today because of the work that they put in over the last decade or plus. But at the same time, how much validity do you think there is in the message of go follow your passion? You never have to worry about your money. You know, I, again, I use the, the example of, this, of people in our space. You know, a lot of them, I would say probably the majority of them, have a daytime or full-time job. And then uh, after their job, they come here and they pursue their passion, which in many cases might be making a product that they're looking to sell. So, and, and then they use the philosophy of um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I forgot his name, uh, yeah. Robert Kiyosaki, right? You know, you start out with your job that pays this much money and you have a passion. You know, continue to live the same lifestyle and let your passion come up to a point where it's equal to the pay that you're doing or a little bit more, then you have the opportunity to quit that job because nothing should really change. The right. problem is that a lot of people have a job, they make some extra money, and then their lifestyle also goes up by the same amount that they're starting to make. So then that just keeps never really getting to a point. If you reach, go ahead, I'm sorry. Or, or the same thing happened, uh, same, uh, or the second option is what was happened to me. I was making a little bit 
you know, of money on the side. And I quit my full-time gig where I had like not just the income, but I had my, you know, 401, I had my everything, right? Because it was a J-O-B yeah. based on my education. And I made the decision to quit too early. So I don't think that was a wise decision for me. Why? Because my part-time income was not up to par. And I thought if I was going to, like, let's say, for example, if you're making 3000 or 5000 or 10000 a month in uh, a job in a profession, and all of a sudden you start doing something on the side, which is your passion, all of a sudden you're making uh, 2000 and your full-time gig, you're making 5000 what most people think, like, okay, if I'm spending 40 to 50 hours here, imagine what I could do over here if I can put that time here, right? Yeah. And they Absolutely. do that. And it's in, my, in my case, case, I burned myself out. It yeah. It was crazy. It was no, but yeah, and it's case-by-case case scenario. Sometimes, you, you know, you're fortunate that you make that jump before you need to, and it works out, and you grow your wings on the way down. And sometimes it doesn't, and you have to go back to where you, know, you were or, or figure out, you know, your, your next move. Um, I think, you know, growing the second business, you'll burn the candle at both ends, and that's really where the uh, – um, the turning point is for people like, you know, either you're willing to put in that effort or you're not like, you know, when you're have a full-time job and you're looking to do uh, your part-time gig, trying to build some sort of business, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, producing a product or a service that means late nights and it means Saturday and Sunday. Right. And people get to Friday and they're like the weekend yeah, for me. Yeah. Most people are not willing to do that. And that's perfectly fine, but you, you, you know, you'll get what you put in. So if you're not putting in that effort, then you can't really expect that return. People that do, you know, they're delusional in many ways. Like you can't expect the, the stuff to start coming to you without having put any effort towards it. You know, like the, the you know, some people argue the four-hour work week. No. You know, I, I've never, um, and again, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I'm sure there's stuff out there that you can do it. I think that before you can get to the four-hour work week, you had to put in, you know, uh, 80-hour work weeks to get to the four-hour work week first. You know, and then once you have everything set up, maybe you can do four hours. I've never done it, and I don't know if I'd ever want to do it either. I, I love what I do. I love coming here every day. I love seeing the uh, expansion of the business plus the members, so I'm cool with that. Now, everybody doesn't fall into the category of, you know, finding what they're passionate about, and, you know, you have to do what makes sense for you financially, you know. But like I said, there's people that come here after work, and they're willing to put in the time and effort, and on the weekends, and then those are the people that you're going to see in many cases grow. Sometimes stuff fails. Like you have a premise that's in your mind is amazing, but in reality it may not be. You know, you talk to enough people and you'll get some good feedback. Um, I was once told by a mentor of mine, he said, um, if you fell down and broke your arm, would you go to the um, um, dry cleaner to fix your arm? And I was like, no, why would I go to dry cleaner? Goes, why would you go? That's because the dry cleaner doesn't, know how to fix a broken arm he goes okay why do you ask your broke friends about financial you know information right which is 100 percent true like people that are giving you the feedback or don't do that i've heard this i've heard you've heard you haven't experienced right you know in many cases i think they may have the right intention but like you know you don't know what it's like to run that business why are you telling me not to do it or you don't know what it's like to you know invest in this thing like you've never invested like how could you give me investing advice if you've never invested so, you know, so like you, you have to go to the people that have done something along the lines that you're interested in doing to figure out like if it makes sense or not. Absolutely. I love it. So unfortunately, and I'm telling you this from experience that most people will not get it. 
And when you talk to them with a four hour work week or whatever the case, right? Well, you work hard, you play hard, it all comes back to why. Why, why do you do what you do? If you want to stay small, if you want to you know, remain as an individual practitioner, whether it's a hairstylist or a masseuse or even a doctor or a consultant, whatever the case is, right, a skincare specialist, if your goal is to be by yourself and you're enjoying that, that's great. You know? Absolutely. But you cannot have that mindset at the same time wanting more because that just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, you can't operate 40% effort and then expect 100% back. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And that's where the entrepreneur's mindset is different is that, you know, they're always looking to get to that next level by putting in more effort or, or working smarter and in some cases – you know, because people say, like, you know, work smarter, not harder. I, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that, like, you have to put in effort and you time, and you have to do both. Yeah. You know, I don't think you can get away with just being smart. In some cases, you know, uh, you know, when we first started this, we didn't have the, the funds behind us. So cleaning and, even you know, the cleaning of the toilets or unclogging toilets came uh, as a responsibility of my, me or, or my partner. You know, now we have staff and they can do it. But I can also tell you what it's like to do that. So I, I'm fine with that. I don't have, you know, my dad, when he came to this country, this is what he did. So it's not anything that's beneath me. Now it's just, it's not worth my time when I'm looking at, like, you know, all the other things I can be doing with my time. Exactly. I can't be doing those things. You know, it just takes away from me expansion or talking to other people and stuff like that. But it's not that it's beneath me. It's just not worth the time and effort that it would take me to do that to really you mentioned something about as far as entrepreneurs you know there's an old cliche entrepreneurs when they leave their full-time job they leave working 40 hours a week for somebody else just so they can work 80 hours for themselves yeah and that's absolutely. the type of mindset but in regards to what you just said absolutely because uh, I remember when I was starting on my own as far as doing technical work I didn't know how to and I would train a customer on how to do certain marketing things themselves but then when they were willing to spend money I would do it for them like optimizing the uh, landing page, what goes where. And now, okay, I'm outsourcing it. I hired somebody to do it. Let them do it. They're on a payroll. So I can actually focus my time on bigger things that will pay me, you know, triple, quadruple the amount of revenue so I can afford to bring in more team members and expand my business. Absolutely. But if I wouldn't be able to do it on my own in the beginning, this is my opinion, I would not be able to hold that individual who I just brought on board accountable for what they're responsible for. Because I don't know what the hell's about. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, you just reminded me of something that's a little off. But, you know, when uh, in the two years that I had left engineering and before I started this business, I, I, I was flipping houses. And uh, I had one flip that I did amazingly well. And all I did was I flipped the paper. So I, I put um, a deposit down on a property. And uh, seven days later, I flipped that paperwork to the next person. Um, and just sold the paperwork, right? And I made a killing on it. I made something like one hundred sixty, hundred eighty thousand dollars on just the paperwork, right? And I was like, why am I going to break my butt building these, and rehabbing these houses when I can just flip the paper? You know. So I was like, ding! Oh, great idea. So then the next six or seven months, I uh, I had a few developers that were talking to me, and I said, I'll put these properties together for you. I put all these properties together, and all of a sudden. I went to them on a Friday, 
and we shook hands and we said, okay, the deal's going to close. I had put together out of six properties that they wanted, four out of the six, I got them to agree to sell. And the other two I couldn't get right now. And they said, you know what? The four is fine. So I went there, we talked. And by the time I left Friday, I had a potential profit of over $500,000 that I was going to make. For four properties. For the four properties, the, the, the profits from them, for flipping the paperwork. Mm -hmm. That Monday, I get a call. Yeah. Um, that Monday, I get a call from the contractor, and he says, we're not going to be able to do it. And I said, what happened from Friday to today? He says, they're changing the zoning and happened to be in Long Island City. And I was like, what's the chance? And now, here's my, my lesson that I learned from that, and, and I'm sharing, you know, Everything's not always, you know, roses. It's, right. it's pitfalls. I had spent six or seven months putting this together, and I'd already left my job. And I wasn't doing anything else. I was just trying to make this happen. Six or seven months, and it over the weekend, it disappeared. disappeared. Six or seven months of my life, nothing. So what I learned was a really valuable lesson. Cash flows came. Cash flows Big paydays are wonderful, but they may be sporadic and far and few in between. One a year, two a year, one every three years. You just don't know in, in these type of scenarios when stuff like, like who could predict that they're going to change the zoning in that area? Right. And they were lowering the zoning, not increasing it, you know, which is a rarity in, in what was happening, right? I was like, how is this happening? So that's the path. And then also when I stumbled upon this, I was like, okay. So I have a bunch of locations, you know, uh, workspaces, and they pay me a rent. That's pretty consistent cash flow coming this is probably better for me to, to do. And that's how it really kind of started. So it was really after taking a beating of six months worth of work for nothing and failing because there was nothing I could do now. That paperwork was worthless and nobody wanted to pick it up now because the zone was changing. Yeah. That big payday never happened. But it was great to think it was going to I want to take a quick pause because I want to address a question. Actually, it's a statement. Um, comes from, I can't even pronounce the name, M. Griffin. Not everybody falls in the category of finding their purpose. You're absolutely correct. Absolutely. But your chances of them do uh, failing, right, or falling flat on their face, is higher than not. And uh, in my experience and the experience of many other business people, um, you learn a lot more through your fails than successes. So if you're going to say, well, yeah, you can learn a lot from your successes, absolutely, of course. You learn what to do. But it's just as important, if not more important, to learn what not to do anymore. So there are more lessons in the failures than there are successes. But I do agree with you, not everybody does uh, fail in the category of finding their purpose. Absolutely. Yeah, and finding their purpose, I think, is, is uh, on an individual basis, like, if that's that important for you, you know, if the more important thing might be, you know, the finances behind it, making sure that your family's taken care of, then you may not be able to follow your purpose because your purpose may not lead to financial wealth. If that's your, your uh, measuring stick, right. um, if it's just about being happy, you can go to like, you know, uh, native tribes in South America that have no electricity, no nothing, in, and they're happy to live that way because Absolutely. they don't know any better, so they can't miss something they never had. So the happiness factor is, or, or fulfillment factor is individual-based. If you can find it while you're doing something work-wise, then that's wonderful. The only thing I tell people is that if you have a passion for something else, try and find a way to also do it so that it fulfills that part of your, you know, of your being. The worst thing I think is to get to your uh, deathbed 
and have what if scenarios. What if I would have talked to that girl or that guy? What if I would have just tried this or tried that? If it's something they want to try, it doesn't need to become your business, but get it out of your system. And, you know, you never know where it's going to be. If that's possible, if you're looking to be, a, you know, an astronaut and you're 62 years old, probably not. But you know what? There might be stuff out there that you can do, the training and stuff like that makes you feel like, you know what? Actually, I went through some of the steps and I understand what would have taken if I would have been younger. And, Don, yeah, fulfills. Rob, I got a question here. Just be honest, all right? Okay. Did you always think that way? No, I mean, and I think this is part of the, uh, the podcast is that, like, you, you, uh, you're not to be vulgar, you kick, kick in the balls enough and you learn. Yeah. You know, I mean, life uh, isn't, isn't simple. You know, I've, um, my, my motivation, and, you know, you have the, everybody has their why and stuff like that. You know, my why is I have a brother who has Down syndrome, so that motivates me to the end level. Not everybody has uh, a motivator or a, uh, a why necessarily. I'm not telling you everybody has to have a why. I just happen to have one. You know, and that was to make sure that you know the day that my parents aren't around or whatever, I'm financially secure or uh, or uh, stable enough that I can take care of my sibling, my brother. You know, and that's driven me. So anytime that I feel like you know I'm going to take that step back or I'm going to quit something, I think to myself like you know he can't, he doesn't have that option to quit. You know, he is what he is, and he, he is, you know, the most amazing person I have in my life. But I have the option to decide that, you know. Right. So I'm really kind of deciding for both of us in many cases. So that's my motivation is to keep moving forward. I've been fortunate that I bumped into the people that, you know, work around me in the spaces. But my drive has been that, you know. And uh, people who have children, their drive is it's for my children or, you know, someone who has elderly parents. Right. Not everybody has to find their why, but yes, I didn't think like this all the time. It's, you know, it evolves. Uh, I went through a divorce also. You know, that's, that's a tough thing also. I had uh, two dogs that passed away in the last couple of years as well. You know, and when, and when they're with you, I had one for 14 and a half years, another one for 15 years. It, it pulls you down. My driver after that was the fact that I, I couldn't allow myself to stay in bed because I had to come to work. Because there was people depending on, on me here. So it wasn't just about me anymore. There was other people that were depending on me. You know? So that got me out of bed and got me, you know, to keep moving forward. But, yeah, I think that you, you know, you listen to enough. Uh, I, I listen to a lot of audio books because I'm horrible at reading. Great math and science, but I'm the slowest reader ever. Um, and you listen to a lot of uh, stuff on YouTube, podcasts and stuff, you know, and talk to people like yourself and, and get educated about uh, a lot of other things. Um, and that changes your mind or makes you reevaluate things. You know, um, I do a lot of hiking on my own. And during that time, I'm either listening to an audiobook or I'm thinking about something that I heard, and I'll stop and write notes to myself, or I'll go on my phone and write notes to myself. So it's a lot of self-reflection, and um, that only comes from like being knocked down. You know, and I'm far from having not not been knocked down. You know, my trip has been you know a, a jagged cliff that you know keeps going down, up and down, and but progressively going towards, you know, but your life takes pulling you. So my, my, my take on it is I personally believe everyone should have a why, and it's not always another individual in their life. You know, there are a lot of people that are on their own, which I mean, they could have immigrated, they could have had family passed away. You, you, you never know the situation. But uh, I did a, uh, a podcast episode, not, I think it was last week, and where I talk about it's not always, because I'm more of a pull person rather than a push person, meaning 
um, I will be driven more by the things I want to accomplish rather than be driven by the things I need to stay away from, right? So you're talking about the, uh, the gain of pleasure or avoiding pain. Some people, they, you will not motivate them by dangling some future prize in front of them. Instead, they need to look at their situation at present moment and say, you know what, this is where I don't want to have that anymore. So that's called the decision, right? It's a, the opposite of incision. The decision is basically, you're, so instead of cutting inward, which is incision, a decision is cutting away from. It's saying no to all the BS and the garbage and whatever the hate stuff that you have right now and cutting it away from it. So that could be the why to, to motivate you to push you forward. And so in my opinion, I think everyone should have a why because it's a, it is that X factor that will help you get up in the morning and move towards whatever it is that you want or want to stay away from. Right? Again, it's not always the people, but again, people don't have kids, don't have a spouse, don't have a sibling, don't yeah. have parents. So like, okay, it's myself. What do I need? I'm not going to mention the names, but I have people in my life. Like, well, what do I need a lot of money for? You know, if I'm making five hundred thousand, that's enough for me. So, in my opinion, it's like, okay, that's cool. You can take care of all your expenses in your life, but aren't you thinking about other people or other things? Is there are there is there passion that you're passionate about? Do you want to make more money because you want to fund a few things? There are a lot of uh, charitable organizations that you want to, you can donate to. Like hospitals do not you know get built on intent; they get built with money. And there's so many other things that we can do towards the society or the, just the, from the goodness of our heart. But you need funding for that, and you cannot. Unfortunately, you can't do. You can't provide all that if you're just thinking about my efforts, my. So you do. I think and again, not to contradict you but people do need a strong why they just have to look for it if they don't know what it is at that moment yeah you know a lot of people you know i haven't found my why i, I you know how do i find my why? listen that's personal that's you yeah. have to figure that out yeah. you know i have mine and, and, uh, and i've had it since since i can remember um has been my motivating factor but um you know a story i'd like to share is like when when uh, i built the first location and uh, financially, it was, it was doing fine, as, as good as it could, because it was full. It still wasn't giving me enough funds to be able to uh, not do side projects. And at one point, it got to a point where like, I needed funds. Someone introduced me to a guy that uh, was called Circus Man, which is ice cream, right? And he said, for every, every cooler that you can get put into a deli or bodega or whatever, I will give those people uh, one full thing of ice creams, you know, their first time around, and then from there they'll start buying from me. So if you can get me these clients, and I was desperate for, for money. Now, some people say, well, you had an engineer. I could have gone back to engineering, but then that would have stopped me from pursuing what I wanted. So I was willing to just bite the bullet, not have, you know, the ability to go out to dinner. Not, uh, you know, I was eating two meals a day and just barely making it, but I remember going to, uh, with a friend of mine, we split the task. I went to 21 bodegas and, and got no's. I would go in and, hi, uh, are you the owner? We're not interested. I was like, I didn't even tell you the product yet. And they were like, you're not interested. And I felt like, man, this sales is so tough. And by the 22nd, when I went in, I said, hi, my name is Raphael, blah, 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 circus man ice cream. And they said, okay, yeah, I'll try it. I was just like, oh, what? 
And that day, I think I ended up getting like uh, five, five people to say yes. So five times 75, I was like, oh, that's going to help me towards my mortgage and stuff like that. You know, scraping nickels together. So I know what it's like to be, you know, uh, at the point where like you're scraping now, like, you know, we've gotten a little bit better. We're further along. We still put a lot of uh, funds into this to try to expand it. But I know what it is to, to, to scrape the, the bottom of the barrel. I haven't been homeless, so I can't speak, speak from that. But I know what it is to like eat two meals a day or one meal a day, you know, for extended durations because you don't have that option. And then be happy about it too. Knowing that there's, there's a, a silver lining down the road. You know, and our second location, uh, my other friend, who's my partner now, um, helped me paint some of the studios in the first location, right? And he said, the first location you started off on your own or was a partner? Uh, on my own. All on your own? Yeah, 100% on my own. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And um, every one of them, my dad helped me build. The three locations we have, every one of them. And every one of them, he bitched. <laughs> every one of them. He, and I wouldn't tell him that I'm going to do this. I, I was like, I already signed the paperwork. I'm doing it. Whatever you want. And he would I'm fine, you know, and, and he was like, this is crazy, you know, you're leaving engineering for this, you know, you're not, after I did the first one, he said, you got lucky once, you won't get lucky a second time, and I was like, dad, I'm not going back to engineering, so just, you, your mom got to accept this, you know, so when you go back to Florida, just let her know, I'm not going back, so, you know, the second one hit, and he came back up, and he was like, another one, what are you, crazy, you never, and he helped me again, so I mean, I've been very fortunate, not on wood, that my dad's been, you know, extremely, extremely helpful, even though, He's risk adverse. So even though he wasn't supportive of your decision, but he helped you for the first Yeah, he's an amazing dad in that sense. And you know, and now he has accepted the fact um, that like, this, is, this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. And, and I'm you know, fortunate to, to keep it moving and, and, and grow it. But you know, it hasn't been without pitfalls. So I don't want anybody out there thinking like, you know, it's always been this beautiful climb upwards and stuff. No, it's, it's been a lot of you know, tough times. So. Um, I know you got people waiting, but I do want to get a, a couple of things out of the way as well. Uh, because, okay, so let's talk about the business aspect of it, right? The planning and execution. Did you have a plan in place? And how important do you think that every business model, somebody who's launching their own business, or even they're two years into the business, they think they're doing fine, but they want to expand. How necessary, how important is it to have an actual thorough business plan and a marketing plan? Um, Did you have one? I didn't have one in the beginning. Uh, the first location I just built because uh, it made sense to do so, and it kind of you know grew. Um, and the second one, we started doing a little more marketing. Uh, and on the third one, we definitely did uh, a lot more marketing, but still not at the level where we're at today. Today, like you know, um, a PR company that we work with uh, has helped us out an enormous amount. Um, getting our name out there and expanding in that sense, talking to a lot of other people that, that have businesses similar to ours um, and talking to investors. You know, um, the biggest thing I think is, is getting out there and t telling people about your product. And a lot of times, you, you know, you have people that, uh, you know, you'll sign NDAs and stuff. The NDA is as good as the money that you're willing to put behind it to, to fight. You know, if somebody wants to steal your idea, you could be in the ports for the next 10 years fighting this thing, and it's really not worth it. Uh, Sarah Blakely um, from Spanx, Spanx um, it must have been like, gosh, like 2005, 2006, 2007. I remember hearing an interview about her, and she had just started. She had just become like a multimillionaire, meaning like she was doing $78 million, you know, which is absolutely amazing, but she wasn't Sarah Blakely today. 
And she's, she's a billionaire today. Yeah, exactly. So she was nowhere near that. And she said one of the things that's always stayed with me. She said, I did the poor man's patent. I drew the stuff out and blah, 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 put it in an envelope, sent it to my attorney, told him not to open it, sent it to myself. I didn't open it. It was stamped and stuff. She said, and I spent very little money on it. Why? Because I knew at the end of the day, if somebody like, uh, and again, they didn't do this, so Macy's don't come after me. If Macy said, I'm going to do my own version of Spanx, she was like, I would never have the money to fight Macy's attorneys in court. The most important thing is getting your product out there first. And let people imitate it. And, and, you know, and same with us. Like, you know, the, uh, like the sign says, you know, the barrier isn't, you know, a high barrier to get in. It's the execution. So we've been doing this 11 years. So we have 11 years of experience. You want to come in and do the same, that's fine. You can do it. It's just, this is going to be a learning curve for you. You know, unless you've worked with us, which very few people have, you haven't learned all the stuff that, that we've learned over the time of the do's and don'ts and, you know, working with the building departments and all these types of things. And uh, well, you already know, so part of the thing, part of the service that I offer to my clients is the big part, the biggest part actually, is the culture development training. And every once in a while I have people ask me like, well, we don't want to disclose everything on social media because we don't want our competition to copy us. And my answer is always the same. I'm like, listen, if somebody's going to copy you, they're going to copy you. But your style of how you do things in a marketplace, they can't replicate that. And that's part of the culture. So what I've noticed through watching your social media over the last few years is that you have developed a culture with your clients. They're not even your employees. They're your customers that pay you every month. But you built that culture of, you know, last Wednesday of the month, right? You do the, the wine and the cheese events. You do these kind of events like uh, the expos. So that's culture. So somebody could open up a, a place similar to yours, but will they build it the same way? Chances are, no. Yeah. We've expanded out to the last few years mural projects around the buildings where those get rotated. Some are our members and some are outside artists that, you know, will submit work. They don't pay anything for it. We supply the paint, we supply the brushes, the, the, the uh, plywood and stuff like that. We also do um, stuff with uh, public schools. Many art programs have been eliminated, so we've had some public schools come in. And we also did some stuff with a uh, family center that, that it's, uh, uh, abused mothers and, and children. So right across the, the street, and we've had them come through, and we've done art projects with them. And it's giving back to the community, but it also gives an, an opportunity for the artists to share some of their experiences. In some cases, we'll try and take care of the artists in one way or another. But all the stuff that like the, the kids use uh, or the public school uses, supply that for, for free and we know that down the road that's going to play a huge part in the sense that like communities are going to want to be part of a BX wherever they're at because the members themselves are giving back and that gives an opportunity for the members to feel good you know and it gets their name out there also like you know that child you don't know if down the road you know that part that child you know has an, uh, an opportunity to buy artwork and they go oh I remember that artist you know and they buy the artwork or they go to a local um you know, uh, market, and they go, oh, yeah, those cufflinks, that's that person that I met, at that you never know. So, like, giving back, I think, is, is, is a big part of, you know, what we do. Yeah, so, again, that just reinforces what I say. Pe don't be afraid that people are going to copy you. They will never be able to copy how you do things. You know, your involvement with your client, your customer service, your involvement in the community, uh, the culture development, what is with your customer. Because at the end of the day, every business treats their clients how to treat them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just reminded me is uh, I've never met Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, big fan of his. But and one of the things that he said was that if, if 
your business is so easy to imitate, you're fucking dead already. It was his almost his exact quote. And it really is the case. It's really the execution at the end of the day of your product. Because unless you have a proprietary uh, drug or something like that, and that's good for like I'm five years or whatever the patent is and stuff like that, what else? You know, there's right. got to be something more than that. And that's really, I think, is the culture that you're building behind it and the way that you do things. So I'm hoping that, you know, uh, that comes across to our members. And I think that it does because we've been able to keep a very high occupancy rate and we've had great ratings in Facebook and Yelp. But when people leave, we try and find out why they're leaving. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes, like we're in an anomaly in uh, New York City. People come here for a duration and then they leave. Yeah. Uh, New York City eats and spits people out. Yeah. You know, um, you come here to make uh, a name for yourself, uh, to catch a break, to make money in many cases, you know, and if it doesn't happen within a certain duration, then people kind of like move back to where they're from or another place because winters are brutal here. Uh, there's tons of competition. There's a million reasons that it's a tough atmosphere, but a lot of people that come through have made friends, have done collaborations. We've had people have moved out to the West Coast and, uh, and kept uh, friends with some of our members here. There's collaborations. Uh, products that they make in the different markets and stuff like that. So I, I, you just never know what's going to, you know, bubble up to the top. Okay. That's great, man. Listen, um, what happens to somebody watching this, they're like, oh, this all sounds great, but I'm still not sure. And they are, let's just say, I know there's a phrase we talked about earlier, a dabbler, right? Somebody dabbling into different industries, trying to figure out what it is they want. I'm a firm believer that you shouldn't be dabbling into things that don't speak to your personality or your strengths. So I, I know, for example, financial advisors that have worked for big companies, all of a sudden they go on their own to become a broker. Now they have two, three lines of uh, big companies that they work with, but then they're a broker. They build a great website, they have their business cards, and, and then they sit on it, right? And Two years go by, I find out that person, the reason why they really left that big company and started off their small one, not because they wanted to work for themselves, but because they realized subconsciously that that line of work wasn't for them. So is it necessary for people to dabble into different things or go in the direction of what speaks to their either strength or passion? I think, you know what? Uh one of the big things for me was um, really sitting down with myself, or in my case, hiking, uh, and figuring out what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses, you know, and then uh, doubling down on my strengths and trying to hire my weakness, weaknesses or find people uh, that I can count on for my weaknesses. You know, I'm not a big uh, social media person, so we have someone that takes care of that for us. Um, Interviews uh, sometimes are um, okay. tough for me, uh, and I'll try and get other people to you know to to do that for me. And but you got to also realize what your strengths are and try and double down on them. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is just being honest with yourself and real and saying like, okay, this is what I'm really good at. This is what I'm not really good at. So who do I know that can try and help me in this particular category? Or how do I get to that next level within this category? So I think it's just being brutally, brutally honest with what your strengths and your weaknesses are. And it's, it's not fun, you know, to say uh, I'm weak in a, a certain category, you know, maybe it makes you feel bad and stuff. But if you don't 
if you're not honest with yourself, it's going to be very difficult to really kind of expand and grow. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I hope people are taking notes on this. Raph, this has uh, been real. Absolutely. I know you have to go. People are waiting for you. But uh, thank you very much. Congrats on uh, BX. What's the website? Uh, BXspaces.com. BX, like letter B? Yep. Yep. B -X. Actually, so the uh, B and then the brackets with the X is, uh, X is the unknown or the variable. So you can be whatever you want to be in our space. Okay, so X is the variable. Yeah. So BXspaces.com. Yeah. And uh, you guys are all on social media? We're on social media, same thing. BXspaces. BXspaces. Cool. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. Appreciate Good it. Good to see you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast already, please show us your support by subscribing and leaving a positive review to help us advance on the chart. You can always connect with me on social media by searching for Rafael Mavi at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. If you have any questions or just want to drop a line, the fastest way to get a hold of me is through my Instagram. Until next time.